0: The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube.
1: Welcome to the Liberating Arts. I'm Noah Tolley, Executive Director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College and Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and International Relations. Today, we're here to discuss death, dying, mortality, and in the end, liberal arts education. And to some, this may seem like an odd mix, but there's a long history stretching from Plato through Cicero to Montaigne and more recently to Cornell West of describing the purpose of education and the disciplines of liberal arts education in particular as preparation to die. There's a recurring theme in some such discussions of dying to oneself, but also dying to the fear of death in order that we might truly live. I'm interested in understanding what this might mean and talking a bit about how educational educational institutions might reckon with it. Uh, This morning, we have with us Dr. Lydia Dugdale and Dr. Todd Billings. Dr. Dugdale is Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics and Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University, and she's the author of The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Dr. Billings is Gordon H. Girard Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary. He is the author of Rejoicing in Lament, a critically acclaimed book, and more recently, The End of the Christian Life how embracing our mortality frees us to truly live. I have both of their books uh, next to me and I would actually suggest right now for the audience that they should get both of their books next to them too so that they might read and learn from them. Uh, So in order to begin our conversation, uh, Lydia and Todd, first of all, thank you for being here with us. In order to begin our conversation, I'd like to ask the two of you about why you wrote these books. Um, You've recently written these books about death and dying, each for very personal reasons. Lydia, what prompted you to write The Lost Art of Dying? And then Todd, you were close to this topic in a very different way. Uh, Tell us what prompted your work on rejoicing and lament, and more recently, The End of the Christian Life. Lydia, why don't you start?
2: Great, thanks Noah. It's really great to be here with you. Uh, so I am a practicing medical doctor. I'm a general internist, which means I take care of adults, general medicine. And uh, for the last 15 years or so, I guess 20 years of medical training, I have been repeatedly struck by how poorly uh, many of my patients die. And it's not for lack of access, right? These are patients within the hospital setting who are dying deaths that they say they would not want and their families often lament. And so it sort of started with uh, examining the technology and, uh, and asking questions about whether dying in these sort of highly medicalized settings is what people long for, what they seek. Uh, But then it it moves on from there. So uh, we can ask questions about the technology, the intensive care unit, things like that. But then there are also questions of, uh, are people prepared to die? Uh, Are they even reaching the ends of their lives having thought about their mortality? And, And so I've also had patients, and I write about some in the book, uh, who you know? Who summoned me to the bedside? Because they're having all sorts of existential questions. What happens when I die? I'm dying. I don't know what I believe. Questions like that, which you know, physicians are not trained to address those sorts of questions. But often it's the doctors and nurses who are at the at the bedside. Uh, being sort of the, uh, the interlocutors on those questions. And so uh, because of experiences like that, it's also weighed on me that we need to do something different as healthcare professionals. We need to do something better. And that's the question that I've been sort of pursuing over the last dozen years or so in my scholarship.
1: Hmm. Thank you. Todd, why don't you tell us a little bit about the background for both books?
0: Yeah, thank you, Noah. And it's really a pleasure to be with you for this conversation. I actually had no particular interest in these topics um, in a special way until I was diagnosed with incurable cancer in 2012. Um, I'm married. My kids were one and three. I was 39 at the time, and I was plunged into a new world. world of the gift of medicine and also the conveyor belt of medicine, where there were all sorts of things happening that were hard to understand. And I also found, since I'm a theologian, that many of my fellow Christians um, had one of two scripts that they would work with. Um, One script was when you pray and you have enough faith, you are cured. And with my particular cancer, I, I believe that God can do whatever God wants and God is fully able to freely act. But with my particular cancer, even if there are absolutely no signs of the cancer in my body I will spend the rest of my life on chemotherapy because the doctors expect it to come back and expect it to be fatal. And so to act as if a prayer can undo any lament or grieving before God just isn't really a possibility. And the the other storyline is related, but a more secular story that I got in a lot of hospital contexts, which is, take things one day at a time, um, take time to, you know, meditate, and get some spirituality. Um, you can, you know, partake from the cafeteria smorgasbord of spirituality, and that just, um, I I appreciate that I was being um, approached as a whole person, not just a body, but It just rang so hollow. Um, Spirituality, when it's the end in itself, um, just doesn't have, it's not connected with God necessarily. It doesn't really get at those deep questions that Lydia was talking about. And so I wrote Rejoicing and Lament as a way to show how my small story, my cancer story and other cancer patients who I knew fits into the much larger, grander um, and paradoxical story of God in Christ. And how a key part of this is learning to lament with the psalmist to bring our grief and our anger before the Lord. And actually in a weird way, this can be an act of hope and hope in God's promise. Now, in some ways, the second book came from spending more time in the cancer community, the um, end of the Christian life, and seeing some of the terrain of living in this medicalized context. I, I noticed that many committed Christians were treating medicine as if it was almost like God. Um, And where God's central purpose was just to give them a few more hours to live. I remember one time I was asked to speak about my lament book to a cancer group. And um, I was saying that lament is an act of hope, even when it doesn't look like God's promise will be fulfilled. And You know, God's promise is that not even death can separate us from God in Christ. But, you know, a cancer patient said, you know, it's really hard to hope, but I do hope in God's promise, God's promise that my oncologist is wrong. Mm. And that crystallized something I found in so many places, which is, that Christian hope has become distorted. Um, Christian hope has often, among my beloved cancer community, become a way of actually denying what is happening in our bodies, denying that we have crumbling mortal bodies. And so Christians are, in one study, over three times as likely to ask for extreme measures that have like a lottery ticket chance of making any difference. Um, And so it's much of this that led me to the end of the Christian life and trying to give a whole vision of what, how the Bible and the story of God in scripture is one of embracing our mortality and not of just, denying it and saying that God's promise is that the doctors are always wrong.
1: Mm. There are so many things that your books have in common. And, and uh, Todd, you mentioned a second ago, the paradoxical reality of God in Christ. And I think paradox is the word that comes to mind when I think of the very first thing your books have in common they're full of paradoxes, beginning with the idea that by reckoning with death and dying, we're learning to truly or at least more fully live. Um, And maybe each of you can elaborate on that a little bit. Todd, that's basically the the subtitle of your book, Learning to Truly Live. Uh, So let's hear from you first on that. And then Lydia, your book is full of that as well, that we're truly living or fully living, more fully living when we reckon more carefully with dying.
0: Yeah, I think for me, it started with just the fact that I continue on chemotherapy. I have daily symptoms from that chemotherapy, daily pain and other symptoms. And something strange happened after a while. And what I began to realize as I returned to scripture um, and dug deeper into the Christian faith, that these reminders of my mortality can actually be a gift. Um, And it can be a gift partly because our human tendency is to act as if dying only happens to other people.
1: Hmm.
0: It doesn't happen to me. It's something I can think about when I'm 80 or 85. And we actually need these daily reminders. I needed them. I didn't know that I needed them. And a lot of these problems have been deepened by our contemporary culture. Um, Even in the middle of the 20th century, most deaths took place in homes, many, if not most children would have had the experience of basically being like a hospice worker, um, being present with a grandparent or a parent while dying. And yet, as a seminary professor, it's not unusual at all for me to have someone who's 25 or 35, who's never been to a funeral in my classroom. And what has happened? I mean, we have put dying into the headlines and into the media. But that's also a way of saying it's this shocking thing that sometimes happens. And so we, it, we've we've taken ourselves away from the everyday experience of dying. We've put these people in institutions oftentimes. And I found that as a father, as a parent, really the only place I could find to expose my children to people who were dying on an everyday basis was the church. Hmm. Um, But it was not an opportunity I had fully taken advantage of. But we've learned so much in walking with others who are dying, in teaching our kids about dying. And it sounds morbid, but it's actually the opposite. It warms your heart to receive each day as a gift from God. Mm. And it really, really is a path of joy to admit, I am small. I am not the savior of the world. I can't make everything different, but I have this breath. I have this life as a total gift and I'm going to live in light of this smallness. Hmm. Lydia. Thanks what? for
2: that, Todd. Yeah, so both how, uh, how the thought of our finitude or the threat of death brings into relief uh, the sort of idea of living well and living in the fullness of life, and then also this question of, of paradox. Uh, I would say that, as you know, kind of throughout my medical training and my medical journey, having patient after patient come into my office and sit down and say, We had a family reunion three weeks ago and my sister overdosed last week and she's dead. Hmm. Or, you know, I went to the neurologist for my headaches and I have a lethal brain tumor. Uh, Or, you know, three months ago, this gentleman was fine and now he has stage four pancreatic cancer. I remember one day sitting in clinic and every patient who came in had such a devastating new diagnosis or trauma. And you sort of sit through that as a doctor and you think, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Any minute, like life can turn on a dime. Uh, We were recently um, uh, driving outside of Manhattan to go rock climbing with my daughter's scout troop. And on the way out of town at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, there was a terrible car accident that we just missed. And all of these cars overturned. And you think, it's a beautiful, glorious fall day. The sun is shining, the leaves are brilliant colors and somebody's life has just been devastated and it could have been us. And so sort of living constantly in in light of the fact that at any moment, it can be any of us. And that takes maybe a, a, a kind of courage or maybe a kind of humility or maybe a kind of sort of awareness that the sort of flip side of that is to pretend that it doesn't happen. Uh, we, we see the accident, but we distance ourselves from it. You know, I take care of the patients, but that's not me. You know, I, go, you know, I, I can go back to my sort of protected life, whatever I want to create for myself. Uh, and so I think I've always been one who has, has tried to sort of walk with my patients through that, that trauma and that translates into a, a different kind of uh, comfort, if you will, uh, with the idea of my finitude. I also was raised in a household with a grandfather who uh, was a prisoner of war. He, was, uh, he had an airplane crash while he was in flight school and then he was shot down during the war. And um, it's kind of, I, I, I don't know, the man must've had nine lives, but he always talked very frankly about the need to just be ready, just like get your stuff in order. This wasn't morbid, this wasn't sort of a fixation on death. Uh, he certainly lived well and loved to live well and sort of live vibrantly and, and uh, full of joy and, and laughter, a lot of laughter with my grandfather, but very practically wise, you know, we need to uh, prepare for death. And yet I live and work in environments that are all about delaying death uh, sort of keeping death in the morgue, and using everything we have uh, to to thwart death, and and so I find myself constantly in this tension: uh, Do I, you know, do I recommend the treatment or not? Uh, do we move forward or do we speak really frankly, or do we do both? And the patient sort of has to decide uh, which way he or she uh, is inclined. It's it's a difficult space to occupy. I think in general as a people. Uh, Americans don't like to live in that tension. Uh, if anything, this last week, post-election, has demonstrated that. Right? We want an answer. Uh, we want to know. And and so, living in that tension is a place of great vulnerability. It exposes us to to uh, to the possibility of being wounded, of pain, uh, and um, and and we don't like we don't like to go there. I'll just say one other thing, and that is. You know, I, I was at Yale for 13 years before I came to Columbia in New York City. And we've only been in the city for just over a year. And of course we moved to New York City and what happens, COVID hits. And 40% of my neighborhood leaves the city. Two thirds of the Upper East Side leaves the city. All of these families we've gotten to know left the city, right? So it's lonely and confusing. And I'm going out to the hospital to take care of very, very sick patients on a regular basis, working long shifts. And and you know we sold our house to move to this tiny Manhattan apartment. So here we are in lockdown. My kids on Zoom school. It was a nightmare. It was a total nightmare. Um, and on top of that, as my daughter said, you know we literally live on top of each other. We have a bunk bed, right? So you know we were just packed in. And 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 the girls, you know, we got into some bad habits. I would say. And one of the ways we broke through that was to talk about our finitude. Mommy's going up to the hospital taking care of patients who are dying, many of whom will die. She could get sick. Any of us could get sick. We don't know that we will get to the other side of this pandemic with all four of us alive. And so we need to think differently about how we cherish these days, how we value one another, the sorts of patterns we want to establish, how we want to forgive one another when the fights erupt. Uh, especially between the girls. Uh, So what are we going to do differently in light of our finitude, in light of this moment, this very difficult moment we're living through? uh, How will we uh, treasure these days? And I think that's what death brings into relief, right? The possibility of human finitude brings into relief uh, how we should live well. Uh, So I'll just, I'll stop there for the moment.
1: No, that's great. And you used a word there, Lydia, vulnerability. You used it with, the potential to be wounded. And I think of vulnerability as, as basically susceptibility to change. I, I wonder, and Todd, you talk actually about closing, not closing the wound of death prematurely or not trying to close it ourselves, I guess, even if God will one day do that. Um, I wonder if there's something about the gift of thinking carefully about death and dying, reckoning with death and dying as a gift of vulnerability or a gift of susceptibility to change, not closing that wound and allowing ourselves to grow because we are willing to change. Do you think that's part of what we get back in this exchange by thinking about death and dying? Todd, yeah, go for it.
2: Yeah.
0: I think that's, I think that's true, Noah. I think it's true on several levels, though. I mean, it's definitely true on a personal level, where there's so much in our culture that tends to tell us that we are in charge of the universe. Mm. We are in control, you know, from our cell phones to all sorts of aspects of of contemporary culture. And so being vulnerable here is admitting that we are not in charge, Mm -hmm. that um, risk is real, death is real, and it's a wound, and yet life is still good. Like, and we're not always going to feel like life is still good. I'm not, I don't mean it all to be glimly optimistic with that on the days, Lydia, for example, you were talking about going in and so forth, but we often tend to going into, you know, the hospital in COVID time, but I think we often assume that either God or the world owes us a long life where we, you know, especially middle-class white, Christians tend to assume this, and that if something puts you off this track, then you pray, and then you get back on that track Mm -hmm. to live to be 80 to 90, live to um, see your grandchildren grow up, and so forth. But, you know, drumroll, God never promises that in Christ, and actually the story of Christ is not one of living this victorious life of living until old age, not enduring, you know, shame and mocking and death, that's, that doesn't look like Jesus. Um, so, um, so on a personal level, that's very profound. But one thing I found in the process of researching for the most recent book is just how deep this is on a societal level. Um, I worked through several times Ernst Becker's book, The Denial of Death. And um, there's a whole school of social psychology called terror management theory that has done, you know, many, many studies around the world about how the cultural practices of denying death affects people and affects society. And I mean, just to give one example is we tend to like to get ourselves behind heroes who say that they are going to solve everything, political heroes or sometimes religious heroes. And we give ourselves to them um, precisely because they are magnifying and claiming that they are not small in the way that deep down we fear and we know that we are small. I mean, how many people will remember even our name, fifty years from now, a hundred years from now? This is some. This is a theme in Scripture, in the Book of Ecclesiastes, and 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 as particularly as a Christian theologian, I think we, I think a Christian should have the courage to just say that, to embrace that, because our significance does not depend upon us doing great things for God um, or doing great things in general. Um, It's it's all in God's completely gracious hands. And so, but some of what the terror management theory has shown is that when a society engages in death denial, it tends to demonize other people, It tends to use um, examples of death taking place as a way to set up us, them. Mm. And it tends to um, divide people in a way that they just throw themselves on to a political cause um, or a political leader who claims to be um, immortal, essentially. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's actually a very important thing for us to keep in mind that this is not, you're completely right. Noah. this does have to do with our vulnerability on a personal level and on a family level, but this is big. Like this is really, really big in terms of how human societies function. And when we put death at the sidelines, um, we put people in those out groups at the sidelines as well. Mm. And it's very easily a step toward a dehumanization of others. Mm.
2: Yeah. I, Todd, that was actually one of my favorite parts of your book was when you, when you kind of worked through that material, I I thought there was just so much, so much food for thought there. Uh, So I'm not the theologian on this panel, but I'm, I'm going to just uh, pivot back to vulnerability and in the gospels, my sort of, I think my favorite story is, uh, Christ in the garden the night before he dies. Hmm. And there you have, you know, a man or in Christian theology, a God man, right. Who is staring death in the face and not just death. It's sort of the most brutal, you know, inhumane, a uh, vicious sort of death. And it, it is looming it's upon him. And, and he's not, he's not sort of there saying, you know, well, the suffering's really good for me. And, uh, I love what it does for me existentially and how it, how it opens me up to new philosophical wonders. (laughs) He, he is sort of wrestling in the most intense way you can imagine saying to God, the father, take this cup from me. Mm -hmm. So if you have, you know, the, the, again, in Christian theology, the sort of the God man, uh, Praying to God the Father to take this intense suffering, take the imminence of death away. But what I what I think is so beautiful is then in his next breath he says, "But not my will, but thine be done." Right. So actually, it's not on me. There's a way in which we can be open to vulnerability because we're open to God. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We are open to to the mystery. I mean, for those who aren't religious, it might be open to the mystery. Um, we are open to the wonder. And so we are open to vulnerability. At the same time, we don't have to sort of wish for it. We don't have to um, I- indulge it. I, in, in, my, in my book, I, I talk about acknowledging our finitude, but I'm not actually willing to go as far as, uh, you know, Elizabeth Kugler-Ross does, was saying we have to accept it because there's a way in which there is a real tension there. I and mean, Christ hmm. is not accepting his finitude Fully, I mean, he is, but he's not, right? And that's the tension is, is that we don't, we don't wish for, we don't indulge, in, we're not asking for the brutal death, uh, the, the horrible diagnosis, and yet we can sort of move forward toward it, kind of lean into it, um, you know, Christian Wyman, the poet that both of us quote in our books, Uh, also has a terminal diagnosis, an incurable cancer, and talks about, you know, walking toward the terror and the sadness. There's a way in which we can move toward it, uh, knowing that it is a part of a a bigger picture, but without that being, um, you know, kind of glib, right? We don't want, we don't want to just say that sort of uh, without, without the fullness of everything else that I'm bringing to this. So Yes, you know, take this cup from me, take away the death, take away the disease. I don't want it. There's wisdom there, but that's always coupled with not my will, but thine be done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think it has to be, I don't know, um, Todd, if you've read uh, the, so again, this is my, This here's my uh, theology shout out, but uh, Jean-Claude Larcher, he's um, a French Orthodox theologian and he has a book, The Theology of Illness, but he says that when, we are sick or someone we love is sick uh this is going back to your earlier comments too todd we should not pray that the sickness would go away um but we should pray that 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 which is spiritually most useful would transpire Hmm. i think there's a real wisdom in that right are Hmm. we praying for that which is spiritually most useful to transpire that would completely change uh, you know, Todd. In your book, you talk about the way that even churches pray, right? It's always this mm-hmm. litany of "heal this person, heal this person, heal this person." Uh, what if, what if the prayers were different? Like that, which is most useful, should transpire. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's, a, it's again, it's opening ourselves to the possibility of being wounded. If you, if you actually are daring enough, courageous enough to pray that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can I follow up just a bit? Yeah, that is such a such a profound point, Lydia, and so well stated. And one thing I explore in the book is an underlying tension in the Bible and in Christian theology is death as an enemy, and also death as a mysterious kind of, I'm still uncomfortable even saying friend, but somehow the dying process can be a friend to us in the sanctification of God. And um, so some of what makes in in so many, in, in the vast majority of Christian books I read about death and dying, it's either one or the other. And most of them just say death is an enemy. And you can see how I mean, I think that's actually right. I think like death is an enemy from a Christian perspective that has not fully been defeated. Like there's a certain sense in which we shouldn't fully accept our death, even if we accept our finitude in the sense of saying, oh yeah, we're just like the leaf that comes down and you know, oh, you know, it's just, we should just be compliant. This is the way the world was created to be and so forth. Um, but when that theme, is left to its own and isn't brought together with other themes in scripture that Christ has gone before us in lament in the garden and on the cross Christ has gone before us in death so we're not pioneers when we Hmm. lament when we cry out and say to God take this cup from me and yet thy will, your will, not my will, be done. Um, I think we've just got to hold that together as Christians. And um, in some Christian communities, um, it, it tends to be, you know, one, one or the other <laughs> that is um, held together. And especially though in Christian communities where the only thing that is preached or taught is that death is an enemy, I think it can lead Christians to a vision of living where, um, you know, the point of medicine and the point of living is to have as many heartbeats as possible,
1: mm-hmm.
0: as opposed to a more biblical vision, which is that our bodies and our lives are a gift to be stewarded. Sh- you know, our short lives, whether it's nine years we live or 96, our lives are so short. It's a gift to be stewarded in love of God and love of neighbor. How are we going to steward that? And when we face suffering and death, bring that grief before God, bring that anger before God and know that Christ has gone before you. You don't have to apologize for the fact that death is a wound. I, I remember praying with a member of our church who had been married for over 50 years, and it was the one year anniversary of his wife's death. And he just started crying and saying, I know that as everybody tells me, she is in a better place. I know that I should not feel sad, but I just want her here. And If that's how the Christian community deals with death, then it's so one-sided. I mean, of course, there's a sense in which our hope, we do hope for the life to come deeply, but that doesn't mean that death is not a wound right now. It is a wound. It will be a wound until we die, until the kingdom comes fully. Hmm. Hmm. So I have a question
1: um, that came to me when I read both of your books and especially reading them in the context of the pandemic and the ongoing social movements responding to racial injustice in the moments when I was paging through and, and really devoting myself to deep dives on what you had to say. How can we come to understand and reckon with death and dying to face it with dignity and even to think of death as to some extent um, a a blessing, the way you put it in your book, not that it's a friend necessarily, but that for those of us who are fallen, that's all of us, uh, that it's a blessing to be finite in that way, to have a terminus. But how can we reckon with that without becoming callous to the death and suffering of others? Is there something about becoming more attuned to our own finitude, coming to terms with our own mortality that can help us become more attuned to the flourishing of our neighbors? Um, Or can we see our mortality as a blessing while also fighting for the lives and livelihoods of others? Um, Obviously, Lydia, this is in some ways the situation in which you find yourself as a medical doctor. And so I see a beginning of an implicit answer there Um, And Todd, your story about the gentleman who risked his life to save a child in Iraq strikes me as an example. Um, Your point just a few minutes ago and in your book about terror management and the way that we as a society, when we can't reckon with death very well, we often seek out others who will claim to reckon with it for us by displacing our neighbors. But I wonder if the two of you can elaborate on this theme, this question, and especially as this title, this project is titled Between Pandemic and Protest, exploring the future of liberal arts and higher education. We have as our two key poles a public health crisis and racial injustice, and both seem to cry out to me for rage against the deaths of others, even if or as I come to terms with my own mortality. How can I do that well?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, real, it's a real challenge. I think the more you are exposed to something, the less foreign it becomes, but the more indifferent you can grow toward it, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, so for example, with regard to physician-assisted suicide, it's the same handful of doctors who do write most of the lethal prescriptions. Most clinicians are fundamentally uncomfortable with writing a prescription that they know a patient will take to make himself or herself dead. Mm. And yet, once you write it the first time, it's a little bit less intimidating to write it the second time. It's the same thing with, uh, with medical students in the operating room. The first time you make an incision down someone's chest, it's a little bit disconcerting. The second time, it's a little bit less so. And so, it, so is the case with death. And, and the, the, the problem in medicine is that the more doctors are exposed to suffering, the more they, the, the, the threat is that they will grow uh, immune to the cries of the individual. And, you know, you, we talk about the current moment, um, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, the racial protests in the end of May and the beginning of June uh, had a very different character to how they are now, in part because there's a certain amount of, okay, yeah, we've heard that before, Right, there's this sense among many people that they start to grow immune to the cries of those who have been oppressed and marginalized. Similarly with the pandemic, right? In, in March, people were, you know, in, in New York City at seven o'clock every night, people were clapping for first responders and healthcare workers and, you know, windows would open and people would cheer and cheer and cheer. There, none of that goes on now, right? People just are dreading the thought of, of a further lockdown and and hoping we get through the winter relatively unscathed, so so there's a way in which proximity to suffering threatens that we will lose, in a sense, uh, our our attentiveness to the suffering, this sort of authentic response. And so then the challenge, you know, so I talk about this all the time with my medical students, because they're being trained largely by. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to throw my colleagues under the bus, but many, many doctors and nurses have, have sort of grown immune to the particular cries of particular patients. Um, and so there's a way in which it kind of uh, some of the 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 virtues, I guess, that we need to cultivate as those who attend to the sick and dying is uh, uh, r- virtues of presence, right, mm. of compassion. Um, of, a, of a willingness to try to eat, do the exercise of putting ourselves in another person's shoes uh, those are all things that i, I talk with my my uh, students about cultivating and how do we do that you know we do that through uh, you know care of individuals but we also do that through literature we do that through philosophy and this this gets to some of these questions of of what does this look like in a liberal arts education? On, on, some, on some level, it has to be through many different uh, modes that we're engaging these questions or we grow numb. Mm-hmm. So, standing before a, a masterpiece of art that betrays the suffering of someone and, and, and sort of forcing students to meditate on that piece, mm-hmm. to write about it, to reflect on it, that does something different. You know, reading Chris Wyman's poetry that does something different. Um, so, so I think it, it, it has to be this sort of multimodal approach, uh, you know, reading about Socrates' death, right? Uh, it has to be this multimodal approach so that we don't grow uh, numb, uh, immune, if you will, to the suffering.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's turn this in a bit of a formational direction. Lydia, you just touched on uh, liberal arts education there. And I guess I, I have sort of three questions to conclude us. Uh, and they're going to go in the order of what are some of these key virtues that we need to embrace uh, in order to understand our own mortality better, our own finitude, better understand death and dying better. How do we train people in them? And I know your book, Uh, Begins with the *Ars Moriendi*, and so I want to start with that. But then we'll we'll talk about educational contexts, beginning with your own um, medical schools and seminaries, which have their own opportunities and probably also their own very systemic challenges, even in their very identity, probably with medical school uh, in dealing with this well. And then I want to turn us back to that final question on liberal arts education and ask if you see areas where we can put this before our students in formative ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first, um, what are some of those key virtues? And and what do we need in order to train people in them or train ourselves in them? I keep saying people as if I don't need them myself. Uh, So so what do we need in order to train ourselves in these virtues? Lydia and then Todd, you can tell us uh, biblically where you see these virtues.
2: Yeah, so I do. I write about the Ars Moriendi. That's kind of the foil for my book. Uh, and the Ars Moriendi is Latin for the art of dying and refers to a genre of literature which developed in the aftermath of the mid-14th century bubonic plague outbreak. Uh, historians estimate that perhaps as many as two-thirds of Europeans died from that particular outbreak of plague. Uh, but so in the aftermath, right, so many people died, massive loss of life. And the, the cry of the survivors was, we need help to prepare for death mm. because our loved ones may not have been buried properly. In fact, we know they weren't. There were mass graves. Uh, they did not receive the anointing of the sick, the last rites, you know, different sorts of traditions in the Western church at that time. Uh and didn't have funeral masses, etc. cetera. They may have, you know, this may have some sort of lasting impact on their souls was mm-hmm. part of the fear. So there was this cry of the people, give us some sort of guidance so that if the plague comes back, we can have the tools in our pockets essentially mm-hmm. to prepare for death. And, uh, and so th- I think that's the challenge this, this body of literature develops over 500 years starts first with the church, but quickly is is adapted and adopted by different religious and even non-religious groups, spreads all over the West, comes to the US. Uh, Former president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, is a civil war historian. She has a lovely book on the civil war, this Republic of Suffering. And in that book, she talks about uh, the Ars Moriendi practices, these art of dying practices, as they manifest in the civil war uh, so even, you know, folks, she, she says, you know, if you were brought up well, whether from the North or the South, the preparation for death, attending to your finitude was part of what it meant to be brought up well. Mm-hmm. And it took me of estate planning. That's about the closest we get or, you know, you fill out your enrollment for benefits every year and maybe check the box for life insurance. But that's about that's about as far as we get um, in, in today's day and age. But this idea that we would really, you know whether it's the 19th century or whenever, we would spend part of our life anticipating our finitude and thus preparing for it, uh, is, is a remarkable thought. Uh, there, I mean, the, the story of why the Ars Moriendi* as this very popular genre of literature died out is, is a, a fascinating and a complicated one, but I just wanna say briefly in this current moment with the pandemic, part of the reason that it fell out of favor is because we have World War I, 1914 to 1918 with massive loss of life, come back from the war and what happens? The flu pandemic of 1918, right? Extraordinary loss of life. And so you get through this, the US economy turns a corner and we go into the roaring 20s when women get the right to vote. There's new dress, new music, new dance, new movies and and antibiotics, right? So we start going into the medicalized age And who wants to think about dying anymore? We're tired of it. So long preface to your question, which is, you know, what virtues do we need? The Ars Moriandi articulated five uh, virtues that we need to cultivate as as to preempt the temptations to die poorly. So the Ars Moriandi, especially the very early iterations were very fixated on these five temptations commonly faced by the dying. So the temptation to despair was coupled with a, t- with a consolation or the virtue of hope. Uh, temptation um, to greed is coupled with generosity. Temptation to pride is coupled with the virtue of humility. Uh, what am I missing? Um, uh, uh, doubt is coupled with faith. faith. Um, and impatience is coupled with patience. Mm. Those were the five virtues. But as I talk about in my book, and actually Todd talks about in his, uh, not, not in quite the same language, but there is no, interestingly, temptation to fear death. Uh, but in our current moment, it seems like we would do well to cultivate a virtue of courage, mm. right? Mm. Um, maybe tenacity, right? a bit of a, a, a stick to a willingness to sort of keep moving forward toward our finitude while also living in the fullness of life. So keeping keeping, kind of, you know, our, our eye on the ends while living fully in the present. Uh, so those would be the, the virtues maybe that come both out of the, the tradition of the Ars Moriandi, but thinking about what a current Uh, current set of virtues might include, I would certainly add uh, courage and tenacity,
1: Mm. uh,
2: a a willingness to press in and press on.
1: Mm. Todd, where do we see um, some of those virtues in the Christian tradition? And what what additional commentary would we get from the Christian tradition on, on virtues that we need, or even how we cultivate them?
0: yeah that's a great question and i i loved your the material in your book lydia on the ars Moriendi. that was just so so rich and an awareness of that tradition was one of the first things that i researched when i was looking into the end of the christian life because it's something contemporary um western societies at least have just lost so much um i guess In many ways, I would say that you see the tradition that Lydia is talking about and the virtues that she's talking about, um, just go back even farther. So um, certainly you see it in um, the Old Testament, especially in wisdom um, literature. So in um, the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Job, in numerous psalms, which are often called wisdom psalms, which repeatedly speak about our life as a breath before the everlasting God. So it's a way of both recognizing how small we are, and yet we are beloved. We are creatures who are gifted to have this breath. And these themes are, you know, drawn upon and, um, deepened in so many ways um, in the New Testament, in the Gospels and certain you know parables for example, that Jesus gives in um, the writings of of Paul um, where particularly the way that he talks about um, both the human person, uh, the individual Christian and the corporate Christian as a temple, the temple suddenly becomes crumbling temples. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book of Second Corinthians, the dwelling place of God is in these crumbling creatures, and so it's holding together um, this reality that that we can't even get our head around. But um, we realize that um, we're not just we're not just small, insignificant creatures in the sense that how we live doesn't matter. But we're not sinners of the universe. And that's actually a very liberating thing. And you get the practice of um, daily meditating upon your death in the Christian tradition um, all over the place, you know, even even well before the medieval, late medieval era. So, it was part of the Benedictine rule for Benedictine monks to daily reflect upon their death, um, as a way of cultivating love for God. And of course, the monasteries were not just a place to escape from. This was a center of education in many ways as well, of formation. Um, you know, there's certain ways in the, which the monastery precedes the university, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so education itself was seen as including this aspect of realizing how small you are and living in light of that and thinking deeply um, in, in light of that. And, uh, you know, among Protestants, um, Jonathan Edwards, you know, could list a whole bunch of people who made it a daily practice to um, meditate and reflect um, upon their death because they knew it would make them live better now and not just for a functional reason and because it's true. (laughs) Like this is the reality that as human creatures, we are constantly trying to die to, to deny. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually being gracious and kind to ourselves to give ourselves the reminder that I will not live forever. And so what do I value? What am I really investing in? And um, so, yeah, um, I'm, and I think this is where the liberal arts is so very key in that there is so much about modern education in general that is very good at being efficient and very good at, you know, leading people into technology or into different vocations to do very well. And that is that is wonderful. Um, But what is distinctive about a liberal arts education is that you really deeply engage the question, what is it all for? What is the telos? What is the end toward which this is moving? And so like a concrete way, the recent um, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, Um, all these Silicon Valley, mostly males, um, um, developing the powerful machinery of social media, generally with quite positive or innocuous motives and seeing it has all sorts of unintended consequences. And one of the things I thought you know, it was a powerful documentary, but also a little bit depressing in not just in terms of what social media can do, but that even those reforming social media seem to think that all of this is completely new, that humans have not encountered um, things like this before. And, you know, afterwards, my wife, who is a total nerd like me, um, we're talking and, you know, it's like, you know, there's similar things in this point in history and in this and in this and in this. Like, if we're not, like, reading old books (laughs) Mm -hmm. from people in other cultures and other places, then we have a really hard time getting our mind around teleology, what it's all for. Yeah, medicine is a gift, but what is it for? Um, We um, Without liberal arts education, um, we tend to give very superficial answers to that question. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I will just jump in on that point because uh, you talked about efficiency, technology, and telos. And I would say that you asked, know uh, about the challenges in, in our current teaching environments and certainly medicine is, uh, excels at efficiency and technology but there is zero telos in medical education. If you ask medical students, what is medicine for? No idea. They do not know the ends of medicine. And so, you know, the sort of the very well-known bioethicist Leon Kass has written an essay on the ends of medicine. And he talks about the ends of medicine being health. The problem is, is that if the ends of medicine are health, then things like plastic surgery for cosmetic reasons, or you know, physician assisted suicide, or you can name any of a number of practices, right? Should not be within the bounds of medicine. And this obviously creates a tension. Hmm. So it's better, uh, the prevailing wisdom is, uh, at least the, the way that things are structured in medical education, it's better not to go there. So we have what used to be one of the most holy of professions, Care of the sick and the dying, which is dominated by an ethos of efficiency and technology. I mean, we're a technocracy. There's no, there's no question about that, right? We speak our own language. It is impenetrable to people who don't speak our language. We have technology that is unknowable by people who aren't trained in it, and and we don't know what we're doing it for. We have no narrative in medicine, and that creates real challenges. So. You know, I walk in and teach ethics. And the first question is, well, what's your agenda?
1: Hmm.
2: Because, Hmm. you know, why should I be teaching ethics? Because ethics implies a certain moral system. And if, if it's just, you know, the way ethics is t- commonly taught in medical schools, this four principles, it's a principle-based approach. There are four principles that guide medical education, that guide medical practice. Well, we know that ethics, I mean, as a theologian, you know, anyone with training in philosophy, you know that ethics is so much more than that, right? There are these deep, deep systems of thought uh, that, that should undergird uh, normative, normative thinking, normative principles, and, uh, and we don't go there. Uh, and partly there's just not space in the curriculum the curriculum is crowded, but you can see that this creates a lot of challenges. Uh, medical students at, at Columbia have a total of four hours total of ethics training, and that's not four credit hours. That's four hours in four years of school, and so that translates into students thinking that medicine is really about a transaction. It's not about a covenant, and uh, and this is something I hear commonly. Well, isn't it? You know, you have the license. And the patient comes to you and wants something and you have the license to give that thing. So don't you just give it? Uh, and, And of course, the answer is no, right? We're entering into a conversation, a relationship with patients where we're talking about goods and ends and whether something has a benefit or what are the risks and how do we balance those and how do we make a decision jointly? But we're not glorified vending machines, but the practice, the way that students are being formed is you're essentially earning the license to become a glorified vending machine on matters of life and death. And that's how it's sort of being practiced and, and propagated. So there are real challenges within medicine, I would say. Uh, and certainly, you know, bringing in uh, virtue ethics framing is helpful for thinking about even character formation what it means to care well for the sick and the vulnerable uh, and also bringing in, in things like Cass's essay on the ends of medicine and just at least forcing a bit of a conversation on on telos and, and what it might mean to work toward the health of a patient or or not you know so lots of lots of challenges and then you can see why it just makes it so messed up to care for patients right so when patients come into the system uh, you know at least when they go to their pastors their pastors have this sort of robust uh, framing to be able to care for their souls. Well, when, you know, when these very sick patients come into these hospitals where people are basically, uh, you know, transactional robots uh, ready to just write the script, it's uh, it creates a lot of a lot of problems.
1: Yeah, I was struck when I read your book, Lydia, that it's it seemed in order to write it, you had to put medical questions and experiences in conversation with resources that are typically liberal arts resources, Um, that it wasn't by turning back into medical school resources or typical technocratic resources that you could answer the question. You had to open up beyond that. Um, Todd, I wonder if there are peculiar challenges in the seminary context as well. I imagine they'd be different than the medical school context, but I wonder what they are.
0: Yeah, there are different challenges, but it's amazing as I heard you talk, Lydia, how there are some similar pressures. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of pressures for seminaries to be efficient in producing religious customer service agents, Mm -hmm. where um, the purpose of a chap, of a pastor, is to grow a church or to, you know, bring in a certain amount of money to make people happy, to accommodate people with a lot of different preferences, as opposed to something that opens up when you approach seminary with something that a liberal arts can really help you with, which is what is human flourishing to start with? Like a spacious way of thinking, like that, because so much of the Christian Church, you I mean, Lydia? You talked about how the training of um, doctors and nurses can be like becoming a um, vending machine. So much of the contemporary church turns God into a vending machine, mm-hmm. and and basically, you know, pastors as customer service agents for this vending machine. And, I mean, what's astonishing is that these are questions that Scripture deals with very directly. Hmm. I mean, the book of Job is, in many ways, a polemic against this exact view of God. But you can't get it if you approach Scripture as... Um, An answer book to all of our questions so that we can have a happy life, which is the pre-understanding that a lot of people have. You can't get it if you just go verse by verse and aren't thinking through some of the big picture questions that, that the book of Job is thinking through. And so there is a way, and there's actually a lot of pressure for seminaries to... You know, not assign old books from other cultures. It needs to be, you know, um, contemporary and relevant and practical for the, you know, religious customer service agents. But the irony is, is that I think one of the growing edges of seminaries is that we're often not doing very well at preparing pastors to walk with people who are dying. And pastors are still so central with that. Um, I think that, you know, my seminary has improved a lot with this. But when I first started, this was one of the most common questions I got from um, seminary students when they came back and they were in congregational ministry. What they just felt. Like, what in the world do I do? I had been to one funeral in my life, and now I'm presiding over 12 funerals a year. I'm giving advice about whether grandpa should stay on the ventilator. I'm helping, I'm walking with Christians who's, you know, have lost a family member Um, a month ago, a year ago. There was a suicide, there was this. (sighs) These are deep questions of which there's no technique mm-hmm. that is going to be adequate. And our, our American society especially loves techniques and there's a place for techniques. But if we are entering into the powerful work of the triune God, who is not just a puppeteer or a vending machine, where if we use the right words, then God has promised to fit into our plans and to do what God's supposed to do. If that case, if that is not the case, then we need some space. We need to actually just put technique on the shelf for a little bit, and we need some space to think deeply and widely through these questions.
1: Mm. I have one last question for the two of you to wrap up what's been a really rich conversation. Um, let's say that I resonate with the line of thinking that I roughly drew through Plato, Cicero, Montaigne, Cornell West. Let's say that I agree with both of your books and let's say that I want to begin embedding this formationally in liberal arts education there are still so many challenges to it. Uh, It doesn't sell well. I can't imagine uh, the next uh, marketing campaign or capital campaign being organized around uh, learn to embrace your finitude and mortality. Um, And perhaps it it should be, but I can't imagine that it will be. Um, And perhaps a deeper problem is that colleges tend to promise, deliver on and get measured by outcomes associated with what Todd calls in his book, the way of prosperity. Um, After all, the way of prosperity is how you pay off the student loans afterward from what I hear. Um, And when we think about what's liberating about liberal arts, we almost never think about liberation from the fear of death, for example, as Todd writes in his third chapter. Um, Obviously, I can't ask the two of you to resolve this tension for us today, but I wonder, do you see it? And secondly, if you see it, what's one thing you can imagine schools doing in order to help their students embrace the virtues necessary for seeing death and dying well and for facing death and dying well, and therefore for living well? You want me to go first, Todd? do
2: you wanna go?
0: Why don't you go ahead.
2: So I'm struck that, you know, to try to sell this, (laughs) which we like to sell things in medicine. uh, You know, you sell it by living well, right? Which is the way you started our conversation today. And that's the spirit of the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. That's the subtitle of uh, Todd's book, right? That's this idea that if we want to die well, we have to live well. And so on some level, framing a liberal arts education as an opportunity to grow and live well, mm. so that you die well, uh, could be uh, a, a way to frame it, sort of big picture. Um, uh, yes, so I'm, I'm with you on the challenges there. Uh, I also think that sort of following on following on Todd's last comment about thinking That's what the liberal arts education creates. It Mm -hmm. creates that space to think in the context of a community that's willing to wrestle with uh, similar texts uh, under the guidance, hopefully of a professor who is willing and able uh, and capable of navigating that conversation in a thoughtful way. I think we have to constantly push back against the temptation toward efficiency uh, as as Todd and I both talked about, right? So there's a way in which, I mean, we can teach classes, you write this number of papers, you turn it in, I grade them on my own time. We have you know, this break up the discussion groups by the students lead it, the professor sort of on the sidelines and not really engaging. Uh, And and that's efficient. It's efficient from a teaching perspective, it's less work for the professor. Um, But there's another way in which you can take a very small text and navigate a very long conversation through that. And every student will be changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every student will come away knowing that text and thinking about the text themselves, their own living, their own dying differently. But that takes a different kind of work and a different kind of commitment. It also takes a certain amount of willingness to let go of uh, some of the markers of success in the academy. Right. So whether that's the, the massive class, the course that everyone takes as an undergrad, mm-hmm. um, y- you know, you talked about paying off student loans. My medical school loans will be paid off when I'm 62 at mm-hmm. the rate I'm on. So, you know, there's a way in which to, to, to do our work well, to do our craft well and not have it be merely technique, but also have it be art an art that engages the minds and the souls, right? The sort of the psyches, the spirits of our students uh, takes, takes a, uh, a letting go of some of the, the, the ways that modern uh, academia has dictated success. Hmm. Um, and in a sense, right, that's, that's kind of the story of what we've been talking about, being willing to accept a certain amount of finitude, to be open to a certain amount of finitude so that we can live well. And I think I'm, I'm saying that same thing for education, whatever the context, medical school, liberal arts, or seminary, being willing to let go a little bit of, of, of how modern education has been crafted, structured, and sort of deified, right, mm-hmm. uh, in order to To uh, engage hearts and minds in a way that is more authentic, more transformational. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I push for. You, you want some concrete practices, take a very small text and do it very, very well. That's, that's what I'll leave you with.
0: <laughs> sure, thank you. Todd, yeah. I think there's multiple dimensions to what you brought up. One is just to realize that especially um, students Who are middle or upper class, especially white students, will come in often with very, very little firsthand exposure to death and dying. And so um, there's both a gift and resource if you have the gift of um, ethnic diversity um, for learning from how the Black church, for example, has how they funerals, how they um, experience um, and approach death and the fear of death. Um, but as a topic, it is something that should be required in a sense, you know, not necessarily a, a special course, but you know one of my friends who teaches at a liberal arts college, a Christian liberal arts college, you know whenever he teaches the senior seminar for his discipline, Um, it's always on death and mortality, Hmm. um, because it brings up the most important questions for that liberal arts discipline. And he said, most 22 year olds who he's working with 21 year olds, 22 year olds have not really wrestled with this. Hmm. Um, But I'd also encourage uh, liberal arts colleges to think much broader than just Death and dying as a topic. It has to do with how you advertise yourself, as you said, Noah, how you frame yourself. Um, one of the most common ways I see colleges and, and um, liberal arts colleges advertise themselves is come here to go change the world. And there's a hundred different variations. And let me just be honest, that is toxic. I I don't think that is okay. Hmm. That is a total buying into a death-denying culture. Hmm. Um, And so, I mean, you can talk about the ethics perhaps of like, okay, how do we present a positive, compelling vision that is positive and compelling? And then once the students are here, how how do we shape it? But I remember, you know, I am a Wheaton College grad, and I love Wheaton College. I loved it when I was there. But there were, there were chapel speakers who, again and again, would say, you know, you are the hope for the evangelical world. You are the hope for the Christian world. Mm. Kind of like God is betting big on you. And I've come to think that that's the last thing we needed to hear. Mm. Um, We needed to realize, and we actually needed the the gift to take down our anxiety a few notches. We needed the gift to be told, you are small, and you are beloved. Mm -hmm. And you're not the first one to face questions, and there's a spacious place in a liberal arts space and at a Christian liberal arts school in a Christian space, it's a spacious place to wrestle. Um, but even in how we set up you know, internships, don't set up an internship where a college student feels like they are the hero who's going to solve all the problems of the world. That is not what Lydia was talking about when she was talking about practices of presence the practice of presence is coming close in the suffering and just being with people in that suffering. Doing, you know, maybe there's ways of encouragement you can give, but you're also a receiver. And I really think that the whole approach of seeing education as that which is creating heroes who are going to save everybody is is just not healthy at all. Mm. And so if we're serious about um, preparing people to live as joyful, thoughtful, limited creatures, I think that colleges really need to reconsider that self-talk in both how they advertise themselves, and I'm not in advertising, so I'm, I'm completely fine to be told that I'm ridiculous and here, but, but I, I am concerned. I'm really concerned. Um, because I picked that up. Um, and others I know have picked that up, certainly not just from Wheaton, from, from other schools that, Oh, you are the hope of the universe. And you know what? We had to unlearn that. And it's really important for people to unlearn that. And if, if colleges could find a way where they're not telling that to students to start with that, yes, you can make a difference, but often not in the sorts of ways that is going to make you famous and glorious. And that's actually not the way of Jesus, you know, for a Christian college environment, we need to, we need to walk that more difficult path. And, um, The only other thing I would um, recommend just very concretely, kind of like Lydia's last recommendation with read a text, read it slowly, is um, a great new book by Alan Jacobs called Breaking Bread with the Dead, which I'm rereading right now. And I think it gives just a really, really compelling vision of how many of the most pressing issues and problems that we're facing in our contemporary culture can't be dealt with well and spaciously by just dealing with drawing upon that the technology and efficiency that we have going on. We need to read old books from different cultures. We need to read things that are alien to us, open ourselves to us and some wonderful things and surprising things that we couldn't have expected in advance will happen. Mm-hmm.
2: No, it just maybe adding one more thing. Yep. One of my charges often to my medical students is that they go and hang out with the hospital chaplains mm. because the hospital chaplains are the ones who are, they're all different faiths uh, in New York city. It's like everything. Um, and they are also the ones who often sit uh, with the dying and for extended periods of time and comfort the families. And I've, I've encouraged my students to do that just to see a very different side to medicine. And I wonder, if that is something that could be translated into the liberal arts uh, context, especially based on what you said, Todd, about these students not seeing death. I mean, what if they all had uh, a a nursing home uh, volunteer requirement, or they could make home visits with a social worker, uh, or maybe if there is a local hospital, they could do something with a hospital chaplain. But I think there are different ways to give students this firsthand exposure to sickness and dying and vulnerability and and helping them also learn their own powerlessness, right? Which is getting to your point too, Todd, of of sitting there, practicing a ministry of presence, not doing something, not fixing something, but in a sense, learning to receive uh, the wisdom of the dying person, even if that person can't say anything, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think exercises like that would would, would be transformational for young students.
1: Well, thank you both for those final answers. There's so much in there. We could do a whole other hour on just those things. And I'm struck by the ways in which there are formational questions for our institutions themselves. It's, it's not only a question of how do we form our students or the broader community uh, that we shape, including employees and the community around us, but also what form or shape do our institutions want to take? What virtues do we need them to embody? So I thank you both for being with us today. I learned so much from this conversation from your two books. I'm grateful.